Welcome to Fraternity. You are listening to the very first episode of Fraternity. Fraternity, first and foremost, is a horror movie podcast featuring myself, I'm Sean, and my brother, Danny. Hi, I'm Danny. And we'll be doing things a little differently than most horror podcasts in the sense that we're not here to review movies specifically. We're here to celebrate film. We're also here to come at it from a few different angles. I am uh, a decade older than my brother, and I've been a lifelong horror movie collector and avid fan my entire life. And you, Danny, not so much, right? Yeah, it's only uh, in recent years that I've been getting into the horror genre and appreciating it. Always been interested in it because of your interest, but slower on it yeah and i think that's an angle we'd like to come at our viewers with is one of remembrance whereas i have fond memories of discovering these things many years ago but we'll also be having new experiences and new connections formed with danny experiencing some of these films for the very first time and again just through discovery and remembrance that's what we hope to achieve here right yeah it's kind of like you passing the torch like you are a huge fan of horror you've been a part of the horror community for a while and i want to do my part to kind of take it for the next generation because i really admire the horror community you know they're very self-sustainable and they keep the keep the love alive so i want to become a part of that and spread it i like that i just want to talk about you and maybe you can talk about me for a second whereas you growing up you really didn't have an interest in much film in general i would say that's something you've come to quite late i mean i liked you know kids movies and disney movies but i wasn't really watching any films that really struck me you know the first film that really kind of hit me hard i don't remember how old i was maybe like a freshman in high school is when i first saw fight club it was on tv and i just sat there and watched the whole thing and that was the first movie that ever really like blew me away and i was like wow like this is what film can be like I've been missing out on this, you know, because I've been, I was more into video games, really heavy video gamer back then. But I always appreciated your love for horror and I always thought it was really cool. But I was also a huge scaredy cat. Like I would walk into Spencer's Gifts and I would like not want to see the Chucky dolls or like all that sort of thing because it would just creep me out. I don't know why. We're like polar opposites, you and me, at least as children. My room must not have been the most joyous when you were younger. Oh, oh, definitely not. Your room just gave off dark aura. Not negative, but dark. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you like the macabre. Uh, we should also say our mom is kind of like into the kind of supernatural stuff. So I, I always wonder like how much influence she has in that regard because she loves scary stuff. She loves X-Files. She loves to stay at haunted houses overnight. <laughs> yeah, I mean... We definitely come from a family that appreciates the uh, fantastical and isn't afraid to dabble in the dark side. And fantastical and dark is horror in a nutshell. So I look forward to taking this adventure again. You know, here we are recording for eternity. I'm sure it'll be a blast. And it's about time we actually record it and not just talk about it. I'm really excited. It's something I want to put a lot of work into, and I'm willing to put in the work to make it good and really take the time and do justice to the horror genre. 
because like I said, it's uh, something I've always respected and I really want to be a part of and say that, yeah, I am a part of the horror community. Well, again, with that, welcome to Fraternity. We hope you enjoy it and let's get on with the show. Let's get it on. All right. Again, you're listening to Fraternity and we're about to record our first episode. And I guess it's time to reveal our first movie, which is going to be about two brothers, ironically. You know, one thing about Fraternity is we like to make connections and there's nothing better that could connect this first podcast than a movie about two brothers. And that movie would be 1982's Basket Case by Frank Henenlotter. Now, this was a first time viewing for you, right, Danny? Yeah, and I had no idea the plot or anything. I didn't look it up beforehand. So when I realized the story was about two brothers, I was like, okay, I understand why he picked it now. Like, it's so fitting for us to talk about this. Yeah, and had you even seen a trailer to this before? No, no trailer. I think, did did you own this on VHS? I did, I did. One of the reasons we decided to go with this first and foremost, too, is... Again, I've been collecting horror all my life, and you have to go back to April or May of the year 2000 is when I first discovered Basket Case, and we had just moved just outside of New Orleans. It was the first time we ever made a move in my life, and I'm a 15-year-old kid, and everything kind of sucks. You know, it's like you just left your friends, you left everything behind. And one day we were out driving down the main strip of town and I noticed an old mom and pop video store. And I I said, hey, can we stop by there and check it out? And this was the era of major video chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and all that. So these mom and pop video stores were not long for this world. At this point, it was even amazing to see this one, you know. So we went inside and of course they were selling a lot of their stock. like. I want to say that the movies were going for two for $10 at the time. And so I started looking around at the movies. I was like, what am I going to choose? Because I'm going to get two movies, obviously. And I remember picking up Basket Case. And I've been struggling to remember why I chose this. Because I've been watching horror horror movies now for a while. And I own movies already. But I wasn't like a huge collector. But I could see the opportunity in front of me here. It's like, I'm in this small town. I don't really have anything. But I just found this a wellspring of horror movies. Because there were a lot of horror movies in this place. And I grew up loving the horror movie aisle of mom and pop video stores. Because it was like, there was just something dark and dank about it. You know, like, especially when you're a young kid. It's like, you're not even supposed to be going down here. But here's all this crazy promo art. And just you, you let your child imagination run wild with it. And I don't know if you've checked out the cover for Basket Case, but it's a nice hero shot of Belial like peeking out of the basket with his disfigured claw hand. Yeah, well, that's why I brought it up if you owned it, because I definitely feel like I have a memory of seeing it on your shelf or something. Maybe you showed it to me, but I, I feel like I had definitely seen it before. That's why I bring it up. Because you used to have like a, a rack of VHSs in your room. And then later when you moved out, you know, we would come visit you in your apartment. You would have your VHSs set up. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say like you kind of have a recollection of that image because it has to be a iconic image of horror. And if it's not, it deserves to be, which I'm pretty sure it is. 
but there's just something haunting about that and like the little like the tenant in room seven is small and angry you know <laughs> yeah well it's like it, it, you said letting your imagination run wild like you don't know what belial looks like looking at that cover you only get a little glimpse of it and you're you're probably thinking like what is this thing in this basket because you 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 know you're probably in for some decent special effects if anything most definitely most definitely and i mean even the title basket case you know there's so many connotations that you can attach to that even before seeing it and so i remember i picked up basket case in one other movie and i was like this is it this is the one and the rest is history it was at that time where I decided due to my love for the old mom and pop video stores, I was like, you know, this place is selling all their movies and you can go out, you know, at this time to Suncoasts or Best Buys and buy horror films. But these were like the original, this was the original media 1983 release, home video release of it. It wasn't the best box, you know, it's seen shelfware, it's, it's been touched, you know, it's had experiences with other people, you know, and. I was like, this is what I want to recreate in a horror movie collection. Now, this is 2000. You know, now we have Blu-ray, which is fantastic, which I actually have the Basket Case Arrow video release, which I watched in preparation for this, which as much as I'm waxing philosophically about these VHSs, horror is at the best home video place it could be right now. You know, with like what Arrow Video or Scream Factory or Synapse or any of these companies are doing. Most definitely. Shout out to all those companies doing great work. <laughs> right. God's work. But at the same token, someone who grew up with these VHSs, they just know like they're as important as the film, you know, especially we kind of discussed this before where I asked the question, like, wh where do you do where do you find Basket Case today if you're not aware of it? You know, that stresses the importance of the art, the synopsis, and everything that went into the box art of these films. It's a totally different experience than scrolling through Hulu and looking at something or anything like that. You know, it just is. It's just different. And again, you put something like Basket Case in your hand and you're like, wow, this looks crazy, sounds crazy. And I just really want to check this out. You know, it sells itself. Whereas, where do you find that now? You know, how would you come across Basket Case today? Yeah, I don't know. Like, just everything that goes into a box art and a title, it's like none of, the, I don't want to say none of that matters anymore, but the things that have, that the, the things that matter to like be eye catching are definitely not the same as they were 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we talk, I, I mentioned that I have the Arrow Video Blu-ray release, which can only be like a year or two old at this point, and it's great. It has reversible original cover art, it has new art, but who's finding that that isn't already aware of Basket Case? Like, even this podcast about Basket Case, you know, hopefully we can find some people who haven't heard of it and maybe direct them towards it, because it deserves to be directed towards. But at, at the same token, I think at least there is a fan base, you know, and it's like, that's great. But man, it would be great to expand it even further because I personally, after rewatching it, which this was a rewatch, I hadn't seen this in years. 
And I, I thought it was great. I personally thought it was great. So whenever you're ready, I guess we can get into the movie. Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, back to your point, I just want to talk about the horror community and like, you know, they really do keep it alive and it's a very self-sustained community and they do everything they can to make sure that horror doesn't die and that these things live on. It's cr- kind of crazy, like the Blu-rays that get put out now from just no, like VHSs that were just rotting on shelves years ago. And it's like, you wouldn't see that in any other genre, but horror, it's special. It's special to these people. It means a lot. It means a lot to you. And it means a lot to me as well, getting into it and sharing something with you. I think it's really important and it needs to be stressed that horror fans really do take care of themselves and the things that they like. But yeah, it's how do you spread that to other people? Like what, like horror always goes through phases and we're, we're definitely far past, you know, the eighties phase of horror. And so how do you get people to care about that? It's a a really tough question. I don't know the answer to it. And I think that's another thing we want to bring from this podcast is bring both sides. You know, Sean, you love horror. You've loved it all your life. And I'm kind of the new perspective. I'm in my 20s. Uh, These these movies are older than me, but I can still appreciate them. I don't know. I I want more young people to appreciate these movies and not so look at the technical aspects, but kind of how this movie makes you feel. Get the idea out of your head that movies need to be big budget or even well acted sometimes to be special. You know, horror, it's kind of on its own merit. I know a lot of people that aren't into like 80s horror and it's like you're either kind of born with the gene or you aren't to appreciate it. But, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't people out there that don't know that they would like it. They just haven't experienced it yet. Yeah, it's sometimes it's hard for me to process the fact that we are talking about a movie that's 40, almost 40 years old now. And I mean, I don't know how it comes across to you that in that way, but to me, it, it still seems like yesterday, you know? Well, I think a lot of these films are kind of timeless in their own, in their own way. I don't know. They kind of, they don't date themselves. Does it have to do with horror itself? Like horror as a concept, being scared as a concept, is that a universal thing that will never die? Yeah. I think you can say for Basket Case, there's some bizarre elements in here that are definitely not constrained by the chains of time. <laughs> oh, I think this movie has a lot of deeper themes than just the surface. But yeah, let's get into it. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, the deeper themes of Basket Case. So, you know, we, we start out with a Dr. Lifflander being... This dude is, is freaking out. He's on edge. <laughs> He's making a very late night call and there's something in the bushes, Danny. <laughs> I mean, I'm every time I take the trash out at night, I'm scared. So <laughs> I can relate, I guess. Yeah, you know, one thing I noticed in this movie is how they name the doctors very aptly. You have Dr. Needleman. Needleman, Cutter, and Lifflander. I would have named him Doctor Can't Act for Shit. Or uh, Doctor Doesn't Last Too Long would also suffice, but... Uh... Uh, you talk about Cutter. She can't act her shit. So so wooden. Yeah, Cutter's a little rough, but Lifflander, I thought it was an odd choice. I think he's the weakest link, acting-wise. And I thought it was an odd choice to put him as the opening kill, you know? Obviously, we have our obligatory 1980s horror film opening kill here. And I just thought... There was a moment where older me was like, 
man, this acting's a bit rough here, you know, but I have a gun. I'll shoot. Yeah. And, you know, when in doubt, shoot aimlessly into the dark. It never fails. <laughs> and uh, but I think all those issues are relegated mute once we get to the face ripping. I definitely noticed like those are some of the first thing I noticed, like, man, this acting is kind of eh. but on my second rewatch. I just felt like that didn't matter anymore, and I was just totally engrossed in the story on the second viewing, which I think I think I enjoyed it more this second viewing. I think the story is really strong, and just the characters, like everyone in this movie is like kind of wild and crazy and kind of weird and off kilter. Most definitely. That's some notes I've taken are like, everyone is slimy. It's just grungy. It's New York City, just slant dirtiness. And it, it, you totally feel that. But I think that makes it more believable because, yeah, people are like that. Like you, you walk down a city street and you just feel like everyone around you is crazy. After the, the first kill, we get that guy trying to talk to Dwayne, like trying to offer him drugs. Like, I got P- PCP, this and that, this and that. Well, you want girls? Man, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's a great scene. And uh, just, I felt like New York at this time period was a character in itself. And I think that shows, especially in that scene, you're just like absorbing it. And uh, it's like Dwayne Bradley clearly has problems and is clearly a little off kilter, but he gets away with being relatively normal compared to what's going on around him. You know, it's like, Everyone around here is crazy, so how are they going to notice that there's real crazy amongst them, you know? Dwayne definitely gives kind of weird vibes, and at the beginning of the movie, when you first watch, you don't really get a read for him. Like, he seems kind of antisocial, like something's loose in him, you know? They don't give you too many clues, which is something I really like about this movie, is that it kind of leads into mystery in the first half of the film and you're kind of wondering like what is wrong with this guy what is going on what's in the basket and it's as the movie goes on that the layers kind of unfold and you kind of understand more what you know Dwayne as a character is all about yeah I do want to take a step back here for a minute and discuss the first kill what did you think I thought it was good it's not my favorite kill of the film it it works as a really good opening and i I wanted to say about the opening too i wrote this down uh, as a note uh, when i was rewatching it but it's kind of cool to think like Dwayne is here you know you you don't see him but he's here with belial right i i do appreciate how much of a slow burn inciting incident to everything that's happening is in this and yeah like the character reveals you're absolutely right. Like, we do kind of get a better glimpse at what's going on with the Needleman scenes. And yeah, it's well done. What I want to say about the face ripping is I'm going back to being a 14 year old boy watching this for the first time. And horror movies have to deliver the goods. This is 82. This is the era of the slasher. And especially, I'm watching this 20 years later. I have a treasure trove of horror movies at my disposal. But when you see that mutated hand come up and rip the face, I think it delivers the goods. Because face ripping is something you don't get that often. I mean, I'm struggling to think of anything else, to be honest. I'm sure it's out there. But it's not a machete, you know, it's not a sharp object except for rugged ass nails, you know. And so I think in that in alone is 
you know, you think of the era of the slasher where everyone had their weapon and here's like just face shredding action, you know, and I really appreciated that. I thought I was like, okay, you're delivering the goods. It's arguably more brutal than getting stabbed, like just getting your face ripped, you know, getting these fingers in your mouth and stretching your skin. It's pretty brutal. And I do like the first shot you see of Belial's face there. You don't really know what to make of it. You're like, what is that? And it's like moaning and screaming. A lot of the kills have this kind of like confusion about them that I really enjoy. So eventually we do get to the hotel where a lot of this movie is going to take place. And again, this is where you first really start to meet just all these decrepit characters. Like you've got the drunks, you've got prostitutes and Johns who should know better. You've got my favorite side character. I don't know about you, but I really like the hotel manager. I don't know if he has a name. Yeah, there, there's a few characters where I, I struggled to get names, but yeah, he, he's great. <laughs> you're lo- the, the creepy old guy's like, he's loaded, and the manager's, you're loaded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a, uh, another classic line from this movie is the, uh, this isn't a hotel, it's a nut house. <laughs> yeah. Great delivery on that line. Poor guy having to run up and down the flight of stairs, you know. He's just clueless, he doesn't know, like, no one tells me nothing. Like, he's just out of it. Like, he doesn't know what to do. You know, what would anybody do? It's just a job to him. <laughs> you know, like, he's not getting paid enough to deal with this. Like, <laughs> Definitely not. And who, maybe it's a normal day for him. Maybe, you know, New York is just like this all the time. Maybe he's running up there, up and down on normal days. That's another thing I, I, I used to describe Dwayne is, you know, clearly he's our protagonist, but he's also... I mean, kind of the villain of this story, in a sense. I was going to say, I would argue that Dwayne is a villain protagonist, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's conscious of his actions. And uh, I think Belial is the mastermind here, but Dwayne knows what's going on. Dwayne definitely enjoys it. You know, he wants to get revenge. Maybe not as much as Belial, but they both... There, he's not acting alone. You know, you have to ask how much of it is Belial's influence as well, because he is in his head, you know, speaking to him and telling him all these things. So it's like, how much of the blame does Dwayne really take? How much of it is Belial's influence? So interesting to think about. A- ask yourself, like, who's more to blame? How innocent are, really are these people? And I also, I don't, I don't think Belial is completely evil either. I think he can be justified, too. Now, you brought up a good point, too, because we do get a scene here that does set up the telepathic link. And what were your thoughts on that? Because this is already a film. We've already had the burger chewing scene right before this, where the two brothers are sharing burgers, and one is a mutated, hideously deformed creature in a wicker basket. And our suspension of disbelief is pretty strong already and then they introduce the telepathic link i think that's like real though with in real life like that can i don't know if it's real but they always say like oh twins can know what they're feeling or like thinking you know i don't know how much of that is like them just being on the same wavelength or what that doesn't bother me at all i think that's totally believable yeah i i mean me personally i just went with it i think there was a part of me that was like oh yeah that's right they can communicate there's definitely a lot of fantastical elements going on here already. Just for me personally, like 
I love the fusion of like supernatural magical stuff and the mundane reality. I love when those two mix together. So I'm all for it. Yeah, the word I was going to use for Dwayne is fish out of water. Yeah, he's very sheltered and kind of naive. Right, but dangerous. <laughs> but he has seen a lot of, uh, he's had a lot of trauma in his life, as we'll get to later on. I don't want to go too forward in the story. So we do get a little scene in the morning with the hooker Casey and someone we come to know as O'Donovan snooping around. What was, how, how do you feel about the character of Casey? Because she does, she is quite an important character in the movie. Yeah, she's kind of, well, she's not, she's the first one that kind of shows him like kind of unbiased interest, you know, like, hi, like, who are you? What's up? How you doing? She's kind of his first friend there and they promise to go get drinks later. Yeah, she's friendly. She's friendly. She's believable. Her first scene is a bit rough, but I think as the movie goes on, she gets better at, uh, at the acting, the acting department. Yeah, outside of the uh, love interest that we're going to meet soon here, I feel like she more than anything represents the innocence in the film, which go figure a hooker representing innocence. But I think it's I think it's brilliant. And again, we get O'Donovan snooping around, which he's just some creepy schmuck in this motel. And and Casey even brings up like last week you were doing this and now you're looking through lock holes like what's wrong with you, old man? Yeah, and I think like seedy thieving conniving people become kind of a theme here because lord knows this is a horror film and we need we need a little bit more of a body count than the doctors can provide so we're gonna have to have some conflicts yeah three is a little a little low we got to get some more more death involved here is there anyone you expected to die on your first viewing and was there anyone that you expected to survive that didn't I really don't think so. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I can't think of anybody now. I was surprised the hotel manager lived. I definitely thought he was going to get it, but <laughs> I was glad I was glad he survived. Yeah, I mean outside of like the mains, the uh the hotel manager is in there quite a bit and yeah, he's always like he's almost always on the outside looking in, clueless and having to deal with all this bullshit <laughs> so yeah i guess it is kind of surprising that he didn't get any action but also i'm not that surprised i guess so now we head to needleman's office boy is this an office yet another nutcase in there complaining uh to the receptionist about getting the wrong pills and being allergic going off a rocker the crazy bag lady yeah and it's like why does she have four giant bags that look like they have nothing inside of them. But, you know, you'd probably see that. You see that all the time walking down the street. Yeah, my feelings were, first of all, how does a doctor in this office have any patience? And secondly, lady, he's trying to kill you because you're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was my thought on that. Did you catch the receptionist's name? I think in the credits it's Sharon. Her name is Sharon, yeah. I, I, I don't know if they ever say it. I think she must say it to Dwayne at some point, but I missed it. I was like, what is her name? Because I was writing in my notes. I was just like, a receptionist. But I was like, what is her name? And I looked it up later. But yeah, it is Sharon. Yeah, she gets uh, enough dialogue that we know she's not a throwaway. I like their little scene together where she's like, obviously showing interest. And he's just like, kind of focused on his current mission. You know, and he gives off, he, he kind of comes off as creepy in that scene. Like I said, 
we kind of haven't seen too much into his psyche yet and it's like what is wrong with this guy like what does she see in him like he's kind of weird yeah definitely i was like whatever ungodly reason she's attracted to Dwayne, but she's throwing herself at the man for sure he's just not he's not biting at all it's uh they're quirky but i thought they had good chemistry and uh as we'll come to find out that's not the last we'll see of her and it also sets up a nice secondary plot you know we, we know that the hunt is on we don't know why yet but we know there's something there's a a storyline in motion and i think this sets up a b storyline nicely especially when they drop the uh the, i don't want him to hear line you know so you know like this is gonna cause problems <laughs> yeah and we know the more they continue their relationship that both this a plot plot and b plot are definitely gonna coincide at one point and come together in the climax which i think it's all set up really great and i mean to be fair shouldn't it let's let's Shouldn't Dwayne know better? Bros before hoes? Bros before, well, can you call it bros? Or would it be like hideously deformed Siamese twin reject before hoes? <laughs> uh, it's the same principle, so. So we meet Needleman, and I like that Needleman is sort of the driver here of like starting to show the plan in motion you know like they really freaked the shit out of this guy pretty simply like Dwayne shows him that gnarly scar where he must have fallen off a skateboard on a really tall hill and slid down shirtless or something because that was savage or maybe not maybe it's something else yeah they 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 give you little tidbits like what is this scar what does he have what is his history with this doctor why is he visiting him it's all kind of stewing in your mind and it makes you want to wa- keep watching. Can I just say, too, that Needleman is rocking a killer stash? <laughs> he's great. Uh, he's definitely probably my second favorite kind of secondary character. Yeah, he, he... Whoever played this character really gave it his all. Like, it's funny. He's got this nervous energy about him once he starts to put it together. Eating like a, like a piece of chicken when, he, when Dwayne first comes in the room. <laughs> It's disgusting. And he's like giving, he's giving Dwayne looks like, what did they mean by the, these stares and look downs from Needleman? <laughs> yeah. And this office again, it's worse than Dwayne's room he's renting. It, look, I'm no expert on doctors, but I'm not going to a doctor who can't even keep a potted plant alive. And it's not like this thing is discarded in the side of the room. It's on his desk. Yeah, we we see later uh, just how trashy this doctor's office really is. Yeah, look, I get it. New York, 70s and 80s, very seedy, very dirty. It's just driving driving that point home. Oh, yeah, it's driven all the way to home base here. (laughs) So shortly after this, we get our, uh, I called it Kung Fu Theater. Yeah, Uh, do you you know what movie that is? Because I don't, if it has any significance. From what I understand, it's like a 42nd Street theater that would always show like a trio of kung fu films. But as to what was on the screen, no, I don't know. And I also don't know why Dwayne goes there to sleep when he just rented a hotel room. Well, I think uh, part of Dwayne's character is on. he's getting close to being done with Belial. I'll get into this later, but he kind of longs for freedom and he's kind of taking it where he can get it. You know, he, he got he got done with the job today. 
And so he just kind of wants to relax and sit back, enjoy a movie, and do what you can while you're not working. Are we sure it wasn't Belial who wanted to go see the Kung Fu film? Because he does have his own seat. Uh, <laughs> did he buy two tickets? That's the, that's the question. Yeah, is he watching that movie for free? The only way this scene would play better is if there was a bag of popcorn and Belial reached out and got him some. That, that would edge on a little too comedic for this movie. <laughs> just, a, just a tad. A uh, little too much. Him eating and, hot dogs and hamburgers is already... I think that's enough. Yeah. You know, they missed some product placement opportunities with those burgers, too. Yet again in this theater where we encounter a klepto. And, you know, you asked me earlier if I was surprised that no one died that I thought would. I guess it'd be this guy who steals the basket. I'm a little surprised that he just got away with a mangling. You definitely would expect him to, to be murdered for what he did, but he gets away and who knows what he told people what happened. Does this guy go to the cops? This guy's got some dirt on him. He definitely does not, does not want to. He's had run-ins with the cops, so he's not looking to purposely put himself there. Okay, hypothetically, if he does go to the cops, do we get a, a artist rendering of Dwayne or the basket? Probably, he would probably describe what the split second of Belial that he saw as best as he could. Oh, I would love to see that. <laughs> Wanted. Yeah, so that, that was an interesting little diversion. Again, like, I think it was like, let's get another little Belial action in here. We didn't get a, another death of a doctor yet. You'll have to wait. But here's a little, here's a little blood to keep you interested. Which, again, is why it's strange that they didn't just full-blown kill this man. But uh, it is what it is. And soon enough, it's closing time. We get a good line, like, not yet, from Dwayne, you know. He's saying, That's save true. it. Don't That's blow true. your cover. But is there a better line than when Dr. Cutter tells this man named Cuddles that she likes when he slobbers? <laughs> oh, that was disgusting. You're cute. I like when you slobber. All delivered with no pause. I put in my notes that Dr. Cutter is cougaring it up with a man named Cuddles now. Cougaring is being generous. <laughs> Overly generous. Yeah, this guy is definitely, definitely younger than her. And man, does she have a poor attitude. Like, immediately, this is someone you don't want to like. Yeah, she's definitely unlikable from the minute she uh, opens her mouth. Which I guess I gotta give her credit for. Uh, her death is pretty satisfying. Yeah, she plays it well. I mean, even Needleman is a little likable just because he's a spaz. But I guess it doesn't matter for Needleman either because he is definitely not long for this world. He tries his best to warn Cutter. She's not listening. She's not having it. He's finally alone at the office and Dwayne and Belial can get their work done. How did you like the way uh, Dwayne just sort of plopped Belial out of there? I know we didn't get to see him yet, but he just kind of shook him out of there. <laughs> kind of a little concerning, considering that's his twin. Yeah, I mean, you think he would take him out and give him a high five, give him a pat on the back, like, go get him, Tiger. But no, just, just <laughs> plop on the ground. Now the ball is rolling here, and now you... You're seeing what we didn't see in the opening scene, like you mentioned, like when you said, well, Dwayne's there, right? Like, Dwayne had to have been the one who pulled the telephone cord, you'd imagine. Possible, yeah. He definitely could have been a two-person plan. And like I said, I don't, I don't think he's shy of doing what he has to, but Belial yeah. gets the killing. That's, that's what he wants. Belial's revenge. They did leave him in a trash bag to die, not Dwayne. 
But yeah, I I liked this. I like we get a glimpse at his super strength with him ripping the door off its hinges. Yeah, I love that reveal, and it's a real oh shit moment for Needleman. Yeah, there's also a shot that I just thought was great was when Needleman first hears the sound and he's sitting at his desk and it immediately cuts to like a hallway shot and he sort of leans into frame like spooked and just the way that was edited together I thought that looked really great. Yeah I think that whole sequence is great. Needleman is my favorite kill of the film. I think he sells it really well. We get more kind of face torture, (laughs) face ripping and I really love when Belial digs into his stomach and he just, just Needleman is just screaming for dear life and just blood is splurting up in his face. He's his own blood is getting in his mouth. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah. The uh and we do get our first Belial full reveal. I thought that delivered like as ridiculous as Belial can be as a creature when you think about it, like there's a sense of terror there, like, okay, you're fucked. <laughs> you know? And yeah, we we get the face ripping, but we've also upgraded to intestinal shredding, like you said. And yeah, the blood splatter. I mean, another product of just 80s vintage horror practicals. Just when you're a teenager, like, again, I like to go back to when I was watching this movie for the first time. That is the goods. Like, the goods can be as simple as blood splatter. I know we're getting a lot more here, you know, but just we have blood shooting everywhere. The geyser. Yeah. Like, it's like when he squeezed Needleman's stomach, it just popped. (laughs) And one thing I actually noticed in this was I don't know if, like, the VHS I had was just very dark. But I never noticed, like, the aftermath of the kill where Needleman's head is here, but his feet are there. You know what I mean? I love that shot where it's it, it shows his upper half and then it slowly pans over and you see, oh shit, he ripped him in two and here's his legs. <laughs> I, I had never noticed that until these most recent viewings. And I was like, that's brilliant. You know, peace over here, peace over there, not where they should be. Belial doing some ceremonial. I have accomplished this grunting. And yeah, I mean, Needleman does sell it, especially when it's Belial grabbing him at first and it's all physical action. (laughs) He brings his A-game. Yeah, and it's brutal. And the makeup afterward, like you see like gnashes on his face, you know, gashes and it, it, it it's convincing let's discuss belial though a little bit because this is our first real look at him you know for a puppet whatever effects they use to create him like man his face is convincing it's very creepy it's because he's not totally human but he has human features but he's not totally a monster either you know and i think that is represented in how he looks and that's also in represented in who he is as a character because he can be this killing machine and is totally fueled by revenge. But as the movie goes on, we see he starts to become a little jealous of Dwayne and his relationship with Sharon. And it just shows that, yeah, Belial has human in him. He has love and he wants to be loved. You know, he 
clearly has love for his brother. So he's not completely evil. Like I said, I think you can look at Belial and find good in him or find human characteristics. Yeah, that's something I definitely wanted to talk about more because I was trying to classify this movie, right? Like, obviously it's a horror film, but I think it kind of defies subgenre classifications because I wanted to call it a creature feature. But I have to disagree in the sense that he has human characteristics where the fact is he is human, which, I mean, we can save it for later, but it's the humanity of the monster that is really the downfall, you know? That's what I found most intriguing was as fantastical as this movie is, you know, it does come down to human nature, like, and human faults, jealousy, rage, thoughtlessness, relationships in general. But we do move on here. You know, they're, they're on the way to accomplishing this goal they've set for themselves. And Dwayne decides it's a good time to, like, go on a date. And what better way to take care of Belial than give him the world's greatest babysitter, a television set. And a newspaper if he gets bored. Yeah, because apparently he can read. He is intelligent, implied. <laughs> Clearly. And, you know, we talked about the comedy of the popcorn bag, but is there better comedy than him twisting the knob off the television on his first attempt. Like, here's a TV Belial and a channel with nothing but static. Have at it. And it breaks. Yeah, and Dwayne's like, it's it's insured, you know? And then he tries to change the channel, just knob comes off. I think that's great comedic timing. So we go on this little Ellis Island date with Dwayne and Sharon. It's all well and good in establishing a nice uh, flashpoint that's going to come up later. But honestly, I thought it kind of dragged the film a little bit. I was like, let's let's keep things moving here. You know, I understand its importance. At least it leads into what has to be undoubtedly one of the film highlights, which is the the Belial rampage. I like I think the scene is good. Uh, I don't think it drags on. I think this film is pretty tight in runtime and I don't think there's any wasted scenes. Going back to what I said earlier about Dwayne kind of longing to be more independent, he's kind of he's running to this date. He's so excited he's running on the street because he finally can like be independent of his brother, even if it's only four and half a day. And I think that just kind of illustrates his excitement in other in a way that isn't said. That that's what I noticed on this second rewatch is uh yeah, when when Dwayne is alone, he kind of speaks more with his with his actions. You know, he's so excited. He's running towards the state because he can't wait. And I mean, I'm probably being overly critical because I'm being a gore hound and action hound. And yeah, it's they're very important scenes definitely for character development for Dwayne. I don't know, I just I just always felt a little weird about it. And then, you know, he starts to get his smoochies on and that's a no-go for the telepathic Belial because I'm guessing he can feel that and it's like... He senses the betrayal. He senses that he was lied to or whatever. He feels it. And yeah, the Belial rampage scene, I think that might be my favorite scene. It's either this scene or the flashback. Just that whole sequence of the flashback are either one of those are my favorite. I haven't decided which one. But this Belial Rampage is great. 
Yeah, it's brilliant. How he's hucking shit around the room and he's just having a meltdown. Like he's not even like here's a here's a monster with emotion and he's having an emotional breakdown. I mean, when you think about it, it's a really kind of a character building scene. Yeah. You're right, you're right. And the scene also introduces an aspect of this film that I really liked, which is the um the sense of community in this decrepit motel. They're they're all huddling into the hallways like, what's going on? Everyone gets involved. Like, there's a scene later, I think, when Casey is very disturbed by something and a dude just in his underwear <laughs> runs in like, what's going on? Like, it's like, first of all, how many people stay at this hotel? And secondly, I guess they never leave because everyone is there all the time. Yeah, this is more like a, <laughs> a hostel or something. But just the way that there's this sense of community about it, I really appreciated that. I thought it was funny. And they're all me- they're all memorable. Like I said, everyone is a character here. Yeah, it's almost like characters out of like a John Waters or trauma film. Like everyone's ridiculous. Everyone stands out in their own way. And they're all like, what the hell is going on? You know? And then the poor manager just has to deal with it. And it's just like, hold on, like, let me take care of it, you know, he's the boss, and he's got to figure it out, even if he doesn't want to. I especially like the guy in his bathrobe, who obviously lives under Belial, and he's like, what the hell is going on? And, like, you see Belial picking the bed up as much as he can, and just smashing it down. (laughs) Like, yeah, I can imagine living under that. But, of course, now we have O'Donovan. And he sees his moment, right? Here's his moment to be conniving, or as he he, he thinks of himself as conniving. The very uh, curiosity killed the cat kind of scene. Oh, yeah. First of all, if you're going to steal money out of an apartment, I don't know why you got to count it first. I would just grab that wad and go. But O'Donovan, he's set in his ways, I guess. And then the picnic basket beckons. And we get some more face torture. Yeah, I liked uh, O'Donovan's face torture, and I also liked how he was like a dying animal that wants to be alone, and he runs into his apartment. Yeah, he, run, he runs to safety. <laughs> right, like, I'm not just gonna die here, I'm gonna go into my apartment and <laughs> let this thing rip my face off here. Yeah, I think about the, the face ripping, it's just like, it'll just stay on, stay on the shot just enough to make you uncomfortable. And kind of not want, kind of want to look away, <laughs> especially with O'Donovan. I think there's a lot. Of, it's just like, oh, this poor dude, skeevy old man. It's pretty brutal. I, I like the shot of uh, Belial behind O'Donovan because it gives you this weird sense of scale because all you can see is his face and hands wrapping around him, you know. And it's like, it's a great shot. It's a great angle. It's great gore and uh, life. At the hotel, Broslin is once again disrupted very quickly, and now we have a death. And I find it interesting that Dwayne didn't sense any trouble until the murder. Once he started freaking out, he could feel it. He was like, oh, like, something's wrong. And then once the murder happens, that's when he starts running, right? Yeah, yeah, then he knows. And there's a nice shot of the room seven door slowly closing. Belial's returned home and then Dwayne runs back to the Hotel Broslin and he's clearly already a member of this rowdy bunch like they have accepted him 
and he does a terrible job of not incriminating himself. <laughs> yeah, he says about every wrong thing he possibly could. He killed O'Donovan. I don't want him killing you. Not the smartest thing to yell while everyone's standing in the lobby. Especially if there's uh, detectives on the scene. Yeah. Now, if we're going to talk about throwaway scenes, it's got to be the detective scene. Yeah, I was just thinking, okay, if we want to talk something to throw away, yeah, the the detective. It's it, it's fine. It's not a bad scene, but does it need to be there? Look, we know no one cares about O'Donovan. This is not going to be investigated. It's just a dead old man in a seedy hotel. All of this interrogation is very unnecessary. I mean, if it wasn't there, you'd you'd probably be thinking, you know, where are the cops? So it's probably thrown in there just to make you think like, yeah, we know, like this would probably attract a lot of attention. So there's your there's your cop scene, your obligatory cop scene. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Obligatory cop scene. And it does give us the Belial in the toilet scene. (laughs) Already, we're pretty far into this film and. We still have not been given the inciting incident in its full-blown glory, but we're getting awfully close. Yeah, I think it's right after this that we transition to uh, Casey's party. Yeah, we're at the bar, and Dwayne is there. He's getting his drink on alone, and Casey comes over and invites him to sit back with her at a booth, and they get super drunk, and they get super friendly, and Dwayne lets out a little more than he should. And I really love this scene because he's supposed to be like wasted at this point. But like he recites his backstory and exposition with the with utmost clear voice. I just think it's funny. I don't know if you noticed either when he was talking about what's going on. He says, I don't know. He says Dwayne and I at one point, which I thought was interesting. I didn't notice that. He's like, I don't know who's worse, you know, like, I think we also learned he was a mail sorter. Not to get too far ahead, but we're going to learn that they did have an aunt that was very receptive of them and kind of took care of them. And it almost seems like their loss of her is what set them on bad decision making time. Yeah, they kind of lost someone that can keep them morally, you know, someone as their moral center, you know, their aunt is gone now and they kind of let their rage kind of take them over. Yeah. I think I took some bullet points here, which we learned the mother died at birth. He was unaccepted by the family raised by his aunt. And it's all going to lead up to a a forced surgical operation to separate him and Belial. I mean, I don't know. What would you do in this situation? It's a tough one. Like the dad freaking out at the crib. Yeah, I think he, I, I love, the dad totally sells it, just like freaking out and like, it's not a child, that's a monster. And like, he's already dealing with enough losing his wife, but also having this twin, the Siamese twin situation. The dad is obviously in kind of an asshole, but you can kind of feel for him, at least be empathetic to what he's dealing with, even though he's not dealing with it in the nicest way. Yeah. And as we'll soon learn, Daddy splits after the operation, but not not in the way some people might think. Yeah, I also did like when we get to see young Dwayne and Belial. I think it's like a uh, like a school board member trying to see if it's okay to let 
this child be homeschooled by the aunt. It's a nice shot of seeing them in full unity. Yeah, I like uh, young Belial. He's almost cute in a way. <laughs> he's not that grotesque yet. I mean, he is, but you know, he's still a, a, ch- a human being as a child. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that also. Like, it's definitely cool to see. Like, not only do we see Kid Dwayne, but we are looking at Kid Belial, and he almost looks like he almost looks kind of helpless. Like, he's a little. He's not in the most comfortable situation, right? He's attached to the side of another human being, and I don't know what kind of vital organs he's supposed to have. I don't even know how this thing breathes. But he he even looks like, you know, he's got that wide-eyed, like, huffing for air look. Yeah, he's clearly suffering, you know? And like like I said, it Belial clearly has gone through a lot, you know? So how much can you really blame him for what he feels? He was just born that way, right? That's all he knows, you know? This is his life. Not many people can put themselves in his shoes. And all he's kind of known, him and Dwayne, for the longest time were people fearing them or just not wanting to deal with them. And the only love they knew was their aunt. So the aunt is really important. Like you said, you know, once she dies, that kind of puts them on the path to their own destruction. So now we do get to our inciting incident, which we get to reacquaint ourselves with a younger Needleman, Cutter, and I forget the first doctor's name, Linderman. Uh, Lifflander. Lifflander, yeah. And did you notice uh, Needleman is not rocking the stash? That's how they younged him up. No stash yet. The stash is definitely a sign of age. But he still has the same glasses. That's a, it's probably a bit, pretty big prescription. <laughs> Those are some great lenses. And so, yeah, the dad is paying uh, some doctors to remove Belial, which he thinks he's good intention, like all uh, semi-villains of a story would, right? Like, he's only doing what's right for Dwayne to give him a normal life. Cutter even says it, like, we should, like, why shouldn't he have a choice at a normal life? Which, yeah, you could argue that it's better this way. Separate them. Yeah, so then we get to the separation itself. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, I think uh, the sound design when she's cutting them apart and just Belial, like, screaming and them trying to knock him out and then the first cut is made and then Dwayne starts screaming in pain. Yeah, he's a full sit-up scream, like... Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's... And you just hear these cutting sounds, this kind of fleshy sounds while you're just seeing this blood splatter everywhere. Yeah, I think this is great. I thought it was great. And then they pull, they finally pull them apart. And then, I don't know if you noticed this, but they, they're holding Belial and a piece of, like, flesh just drops and splatters on the, oh, yeah. on the gurney. Oh, yeah, they hold it up long enough for that nice plop. And, uh... Yeah, that's a good time for me to say, like, you know, I know you watched this on Shudder, and I, I've looked at it on Shudder, too, and it looks fine. And I've watched my Arrow video copy when I did my note-taking, and it looked fantastic. I mean, they, it might be the same print they're using on uh, Shudder. I'm not 100% positive on that. But it looks really good on the Blu-ray. And again, there's just something about when you're running it straight off of the disc and a good player, you know? Dwayne and Belial are no longer one, but 
And this is uh, the first time we see him as kids with the uh, psychic link where he's like, yo, I'm out here in this trash bag, dude. Help me. I can't breathe. <laughs> I'm in a trash bag. So the only thing left is to take care of father, right? <laughs> Which I thought this scene was another dragger just of him wandering through the basement. Yeah, it's, it goes a little long with the build-up. Like, especially when you know it's coming. But it is a creative kill, I will give yeah, it let's, that. Yeah, let's discuss this death contraption. Now, who made this thing? Dwayne or Belial? Well, it's just so, like, esoteric and weird that I want to say Belial, but there's no way he knows how to use tools. <laughs> it's so demented, just like, a cart with every every like weapon sharp tool imaginable. Anything you'd find in a garage is on this that sharp is on this thing. First of all, I don't know how they're powering the saw blade on there, but then you've got machetes, pitchforks, garden hose, saws. I mean, he's toast, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, he's he's gone. <laughs> and yeah, I don't think you have to show much more than leg splitting which man that's another rarity in horror is splitting someone in half and i mean clearly they're not gonna have the budget to go all the way but i think they definitely delivered for the imagination here oh yeah this movie uh gets creative with its kills to say the least and then we do end with the ant coming to save the boys and a nice little bedtime reading session with Belial in her arms. I think that's, I love that shot of him being cradled. I think that's great because it just humanizes him more. Like he is just like a young child that just wants to be loved. Yeah. And he just, he just happens to look deformed and creepy. He's not a monster. He's a human. And uh, then we do our last shot before getting back to the present is the ant in the, uh, in her casket with, an old the Dwayne we know now standing there which I think is a nice setup again like I said like they lost that stability and we're seeing the product of that I wonder if Belial got to see the her last time could he go to the funeral you know or what did he have to hide did he have the wicker (laughs) basket at the funeral yeah (laughs) and then we get uh Casey taking drunk Dwayne home and I like this scene a lot. There's some stuff I want to discuss in this sequence because I like first he says, you go home first, and she opens her door. So we know, okay, there's trouble, right? And then he goes in to his apartment and immediately crashes on the bed. And there's this really creepy moment where like he like snaps back to consciousness and grab jumps up and grabs the basket before just collapsing again. Like anyone who's been drunk and had something important to do knows this moment, right? Definitely. And it's sort of like, we know what he's just told Casey, and she sees his devotion to the basket, and it's like, huh. Now, up until this point, I don't think I would call anything in this movie scary, but I think this scene has nice tension and is actually scary scary like when when casey's alone and looks at the basket i love scenes that can make the normal frightening and there's nothing scary about a wicker basket per se but with the viewer's knowledge 
of what's in that basket. Dwayne is helpless. He's passed out. And she's alone in this dark room. Even when she walks out of this room, she's like shaky. Like, oh, that's creepy. You know what I mean? Did you feel any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's got great tension. And I think, too, because you do care about Casey, because she is nice to Dwayne, and you don't want to see her killed or mangled, as we've seen uh, three other people in the movie mangled like that and you kind of don't want to see casey like that so you are on edge like oh no like is belial gonna go out of control like can he control himself Dwayne isn't there to help so yeah it is scary and then she gets back to her room she locks her doors so you feel that she's definitely a bit a bit spooked and then she slowly takes off her clothes and the tension builds and builds and rises and she lays down in her bed and there's belial Wanting to get a cop of feel. Yeah. He's, uh, he's gotten a telekinetic sense of uh, what it is to be with a woman, right? Yeah, and like I said, I think he's jealous of Dwayne. He's feeling that jealousy, and he wants to experience it for himself, you know? A quick note, too, because even I almost kind of forgot this, but she does open the basket, and there is nothing in the basket. So she's kind of got to be wondering about Dwayne at that point, you know, like, is this dude just mental? But again, we know she opened her door. So where is Belial? And obviously we're about to find that out. But yep, we get a a nice cop in a feel by uh, Belial. And then it's back to community freakout time with the hotel. I think this is what the third or fourth freak out i mean this hotel doesn't sleep no i mean they try clearly that's the guy with the underwear had to have been sleeping i would hope and it is funny that belial doesn't kill casey here because you would think if he wanted to he could right that's why i say like how much of a monster is he really and how much is it just him being a human and just dealing with his emotions but Belial escapes. He escapes out the window. I think most every other time that either he kills someone or has to get out of a room, he goes out the window, which I think is great foreshadowing for the end. He did take some panties. <laughs> he took some panties with him. Yeah, you know, you're right. I never thought about the window foreshadowing. Because, yeah, at, at Needleman's, I remember a shot. The window is open. I think that's how he gets out. Yeah, he leaves through the window. And then here we get the window, the windows open, you see the the drapes flowing from the wind. So Dwayne wakes up from his bender, and it's off to Cutter's office, which we get a great reveal here about them being vets. Yeah, he's, re- he's ready to just get the mission over with, you know? We start to feel Dwayne's uh, frustration with Belial. You know, it's kind of been building this whole time. And, uh, I noticed that compared to the other two doctors' murders, those are very calculated. They're done at night. There's no one around. Cutter's is completely sloppy. And I wonder how much of that is Dwayne, like, just being just completely over it or maybe wanting to get caught. He's also uncharacteristically kind of moody and dark with her. Like, I guess we haven't really seen him interact with the victims too much up to this point, other than kind of playing mind games with Needleman. But he really is, like, nasty with Cutter. Like, 
yeah, you did this. Like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, as much as uh, I'm, I try to humanize Belial, I think uh, Dwayne has a lot of the stuff that kind of makes Belial a monster too, you know? Uh, he is taking... He wants to have his revenge just as much as Belial does. And at the same token, Cutter still manages to be a bigger piece of shit than both of them. So she's got it coming. And coming quicker than she realizes, I like her, uh, what's in this basket anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And just immediately pops out and gets to the face, face mangling. Yeah, so she gets a nice uh, mouth ripping, struggling and... Wayne takes a nice bitch slap for good... Dwayne takes a nice bitch slap for good measure. Then we do get to the scalpels in the face. What were your thoughts on this kill? I'm wondering the logistics of it. Did he, like, stick them in her face one by one? Did he shove her... It looked like he was shoving her face in there, but they weren't sticking up. So I was like, uh, how painful and slow was it? Yeah, that was... That would That... It's definitely one that's a stretch, right? Like, it's like, <laughs> she's just, because to me, it looks like he just pushes her face into this drawer of sharp objects, and then she's got scalpels sticking all out of her face. Would it kill you? Let's just say pretty, yes for movies. It's pretty deep inside her head. They, one of them got to touch her brain or something. <laughs> Sever something important. <laughs> But I thought uh, Cutter delivered, you know, she sold the scene. She's got some piercing screams. Yeah, I don't think this is my favorite kill. It's definitely one of the more creative kills in any horror. Like, I mean, the shot of her screaming with the scalpel stuck in her face. Like, if you've seen Basket Case and you see that shot just in a collage of shots, you're going to know, like, that's Basket Case, (laughs) you know? Yeah definitely kind of iconic imagery needless to say she's dead and mission accomplished and who should return but uh sharon yeah you think the mission is over but here comes sharon here comes the b plot coinciding with the a plot now because she finally learns the news that needleman is dead she's been talking to the cops she has no idea what's going on and she's just scared frightened and just wants to talk to somebody and that person happens to be Dwayne. Yeah, we're we're transitioning almost into a brand new plot here. You know, like you could have been like, okay, they've killed the doctors and it's over. But no, things just got a lot more complicated because we already know this is trouble. And I guess, you know, like you've said, Dwayne is longing for that, you know, separation and normalcy. And I guess he just can't help himself. So he takes Sharon back to the apartment or the hotel room. They're going to get a little fresh. Get a little intimate. And, of course, Belial does not take lightly to this. Was this Dwayne's first boob? Oh, yeah. I mean, he says it like he keeps to himself up in... uh, Where are they from again? Glens Falls. Glens Falls, yeah. He he mostly keeps to himself. First time boob touch for both brothers. (laughs) Yep. You know that Belial beat him to the punch. And Sharon is very receptive, but here's Brother Belial to ruin everything, just unleashing his fury. And I mean, he's unhinged. 
And I really love Dwayne here where he's just like, he's, this is where he cracks, right? Oh yeah. This is the point where it's all been leading up to this and Dwayne has finally had enough and he's broken. So what better way to react than to wrap the girl you like in a blanket and just toss her into the hall? He tosses her pretty hard. She slams that wall pretty, pretty rough. That was nasty. And again, we're almost getting our communal. uh, Not everyone's coming out for this one. Nevertheless, our fifth or sixth communal outburst. Yeah, it's it's actually impressive how self-contained this story is within this hotel. Yeah, I mean, there's only a few locations and most of it is in the hotel. So Sharon runs out. Then we cut to night. Dwayne's sleeping. Belial comes out of the basket and is clearly planning something, right? What were your thoughts on this scene? I don't know exactly what his eyes glowing means, but uh, I think it's a great, another great scene for you to see like what's kind of going on in Belial's mind and just how much he can say without saying anything. Like clearly he's torn up about potentially losing his brother to somebody else and not totally being enmeshed with his brother. And I think that's kind of the deeper theme of this movie is kind of their codependent relationship and how it can kind of be toxic and how it's not healthy to live like that, to live like totally enmeshed with somebody else. Like Dwayne is always kind of like, Belial's definitely the head, you know. He may be smaller, but he is kind of leading them both. You know, I think Dwayne is definitely heavily influenced by what Belial wants. And we see Dwayne always wanting, longing for something else, you know, kind of feeling drawn towards stuff. Like I think that movie theater, movie theater scene is important. Him just having the time of his own, uh, his whole relationship with Sharon. And it's all built up to this. Like the brothers are, the tension is at all time high for them. We also see Dwayne naked. Again, he's running, which I think is kind of representing his his want to just run away from it all. And he's naked too, so you could kind of think about him being naked as him just getting rid of all his, like getting rid of Belial and just being free. You know, him being naked kind of represents him being free. So he's running and he's naked. And I think that encapsulates where Dwayne's head is at right now. I actually kind of interpreted this sequence as a telepathic dream. Like, I felt like Dwayne is Belial in that scene. Because clearly Belial goes to Sharon's, right? Clearly Belial has no clothes. So I thought it was sort of like a representation of Dwayne, while asleep, he's telepathically picking up on what's happening. We get the shots of Dwayne's hands running up her body and just the hands. But yeah, we're we're getting into the penultimate scenes here of disaster. So I think it is a good time like to strike upon those deeper themes and you know, my deeper theme that I take away from this is that it is the humanity of Belial that is his downfall. It's not his monstrosity. It doesn't matter how he looks. It doesn't matter his vengeance plot. His biggest mistake was being human you know you know because again it's like you want to say it's a creature i mean it looks like a creature but it's it's not it's a person as ridiculous as that is 
I think he just couldn't shut it off either. You know, they're what when they set off on this homicidal journey, like it's done. So where do they go from here? And like you said, he's already kind of losing his brother. He's seeing what can happen when a woman steps into the picture. And I think he takes it too far. I think he can't shut off what's been unleashed inside of him. Unfortunately, Sharon pays the price for these two brothers. Uh, problems yeah to me the the film yeah it is about brothers but i think it's also about the importance of being independent you know how much of the film's events are belial's influence on Dwayne, and how much of it can he really be blamed for and over the course of the movie he's slowly drifting apart from his brother and his brother can't handle it and you know, that happens in real life. You know, some people, it doesn't have to be relationship. It can be, or it doesn't have to be like romantic. It, it can be siblings. It can be parent, child. You know, some people just want you to feel their feelings all the time. And it's not a healthy relationship like that. But unfortunately, Belial only knows, he kind of only knows how to be together with Dwayne. He doesn't know independence and he can't handle it when Dwayne starts to show that he wants to be separate. That's uh, very well put. So Dwayne does go find Belial and Sharon in the crime scene. Now, uh, I guess Belial is play raping a dead body here. Uh, I was confused because her, her groin is bloodied up. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. Like, maybe there was some clawing involved there. Because he is, like, grabbing her face and throat, but she's... I don't think she's choked. I was like, did he just fuck her to death? <laughs> yeah. I, uh... I think we could have done without that. <laughs> I mean, it, it fits in with the sexual themes of, uh, of the movie, though. You know, Dwayne wanting to become a man and show interest in women, but Belial taking that away from him. And taking it too far. Yeah. And if he takes one thing too far, it's this nut crusher he lays on Dwayne. Yeah. So he takes, he's thrashing uh, Belial in the basket around, like, hi, could you do that? She was good. Like, And they take him back to the, to the hotel. And they've both there, but they've both had it with each other and they both snap and yeah, Belial grabs Dwayne's nuts and lifts him by his testes. I mean, this is like the deadlift by nuts from hell, right? Like, I mean, he is up there. He is hurting. These things are getting squeezed. We know how strong Belial is. It's almost funny because, you know, Dwayne is kind of helpless once Belial turns on him. Yeah. There's almost nothing he can do. He's kind of in a helpless situation, you know, if he can't get rid of his brother because he's so strong. So your pointed out foreshadowing comes to a head and out the window they go and two brothers end up dangling from uh, the Hotel Broslin sign. Not only dangling, but Belial is holding on to Dwayne by his neck, so he's also ch he's choking Dwayne. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think at that point, it's like, in Belial's rage, he realizes he's kind of doomed both of them. Yeah, I think, 
I think Belial is regretful at, at this point. His angry wails kind of turn into concern, but he can't let go of his brother because that would mean death too. So he's kind of in a helpless situation. Right. He's in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, he's really not thought this through. And the only way to go is down. Both Dwayne and Belial fall and are united in what appears to be death. Yeah, it's a tragic ending. Uh, that wasn't the ending I expected. I was expecting, I don't know, some sort of like showdown or whatever. I'll also say I wasn't expecting Sharon to die. I think that's probably the probably the saddest death because she definitely didn't deserve it. But yeah, it's a, it's a tragic ending. Both brothers die together. Yeah, I think it drives that point home of like how dangerous this kind of relationship can be. It's definitely a tragedy. Like I, I like the ending because it does elevate the entire story into the realm of tragedy. And it's a brilliant work of art. And that is Basket Case. Part horror, part mystery, part revenge story, I think. Yeah, definitely uh, a revenge flick, like in its own way. Which is great, you know, because it's not a typical revenge flick, but a a revenge flick all the same. So now that we've gotten through the movie, I know we've kind of discussed it, but I'd like to end on let's let's hear favorite scenes and favorite kills and kind of take one last little dive into those. Like I said, Needleman was my favorite kill. Him as a character, he just sells it. He's just this greasy doctor in a shithole doctor's office. And he gets his comeuppance from a surgery that he had part in years ago. And it's brutal. Like I said, the blood splatter when he's getting his intestines ripped out is great. The reveal that he's been chopped in half is awesome. Yeah, that's my favorite kill. I have to agree. Needleman's death is one of the highlights of the film the best death my favorite kill just because you know there's a lot of moving parts to that kill the face shredding mixed with the intestinal destruction and the blood splatter there's some great deep gnarly gashes on his face and yeah the man was split in half i mean what more can you say so favorite scene is a funny one for me. I call it burger time in room seven. And I know it's an odd choice, but my favorite scene is the scene where they eat hamburgers because just when you look through the annals of film history, you know, and like you can go back to the thirties and forties and then all the classics and all the famous directors. And then you have, this brother sitting on a bed in a seedy motel feeding hamburgers into a wicker basket containing his deformed Siamese twin brother who's just gobbling them down in 1982. And you just have to wonder, like, how did we get here? You know, it's kind of, I'm kind of looking at it from outside the realm of the film itself and just film in general. And I just think it's a brilliant scene. It's so oddball. It's so different. 
you know, if you think about movies like Gone with the Wind or Wizard of Oz, they don't hold a candle to the burger scene. I mean, it's just bizarre. You might get some comments for that claim, but fair enough. Oh, well, that claim is all in jest. I'm just, I'm putting myself in 1982 and thinking of all the movies you could have seen up to that point. And I don't think you can say there's a scene, there's a, there's not a lot of movies with scenes like this in general, but it's just a simple scene that really touched me. Like, I think that's when I knew the ball on this story was rolling, you know? Like, if you if you can accept that scene for what it is, like, you're in for a hell of a ride. Yeah, it's a great scene, too, because it is just two brothers eating burgers together. You know, brotherly love. Dwayne taking care of, of Belial. So it's kind of a heartwarming scene. So, which one are you going to pick? I think I got to go with the whole flashback sequence. Just seeing young Belial, seeing them together conjoined. It really strengthened, it really drives home the whole point that, yeah, they are kind of one, one being almost. And they're always going to be connected no matter what. And it really drives home that Belial is a human. He's more human than he is monster. Despite what everyone in the film wants to believe. He just wants to be loved. Yeah, I dig it, man. Well, any final thoughts? I'll end with this. I, uh, when I was, I was browsing Shudder on the, on the computer. And you can see comments on the, on the movie. I was reading the comments for Basket Case, and I saw a comment that said, man, it seems like every five minutes someone in, their, in this movie is just screaming their, their ears out. And I don't know if it's because I read that comment or what, but I really noticed just like how much screaming really is in this movie. Because first of all, that's kind of Belial's call is his scream. Like he can't talk, but like there's some great screams in this movie, like Cutter screaming. People going haywire when they see O'Donovan killed. Just all the hotels screaming. It really made me notice it. For some, and I don't know if it's, like I said, cause if there is excessive screaming in this movie or if it's just because I read that comment. But shout out to that comment on Shudder. All right. Well, I'll just say, as someone who first saw this movie a little over 20 years ago, I remember as a teenager... I really liked this film. I don't think it was ever elevated to like a favorite of mine, like, but I never disliked it. It wasn't something like I went to too often. Like I definitely watched it quite a few times. And for some reason it just sort of dropped off my radar and getting to watch it again now. I really appreciate it because I think it can be a little bizarre for a teenager a little dry, like the dark humor might fall a little flat for someone who might be a little too young, but as a horror film, it still delivers the goods. Belial's awesome, great kills, a great heartwarming story, and all in all, just a great movie. Yeah, I think you can consider this movie a, tra- a tragedy. Uh, I think it's great. I liked it a lot. I enjoyed watching it. So, yeah, check out Basket Case. It's on Shudder. It's on Blu-ray. Um, yeah, I recommended. And hint, hint, but 
this might not be the last time that we spend some time with the Bradley brothers. And hopefully this isn't the last time that you spend with us here at Fraternity. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hope you enjoy the movie as much as we do. And have a good night. Thank you for watching.